Hey everyone, it's Jana. Just a quick note to let you know we're taking a brief winter break and we'll be back in the new year with a bunch of new episodes. In the meantime, have a listen to this one from the archives. It's called The Only Way Through is Through. And I chose it because during the holiday season, that's a mantra caregivers especially can use. It's a tough time for many of us, but our guest, author Liz O'Donnell, is someone who's got your back. In this episode, she shares what she learned during a crash course in elder care, and she talks about an article she wrote for the Atlantic magazine titled The Crisis Facing America's Working Daughters. If you're not familiar with Liz's Working Daughter Facebook group, be sure to check that out. It's a safe space and online support group for caregivers. Happy holidays, caregivers, and hats off to you. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. There are now more than 40 million Americans aged 65 or older. And by the year 2030, that number is expected to grow to 72 million, or one in five Americans. Let's put those figures alongside a recent study done by the Families and Work Institute, which tracks changes in the U.S. workforce over the years. The study revealed that in addition to having parental responsibilities, 46% of women in the workforce also have significant elder care responsibilities. So how do these women juggle the competing demands of work, parenting, and elder care? Well, we're going to explore those issues today with my guest. I'm so excited to welcome Liz O'Donnell. She works in public relations and is also raising two children with her husband outside of Boston. Liz is passionate about the advancement of women in the workplace in Washington and in their local communities. In 2009, she founded the award-winning blog Hello Ladies to deliver useful and actionable news and information to smart, busy women interested in career, politics, work-life balance, and leadership. Liz is also the author of Mobile Mom and Maid, The Balancing Act of the Modern Woman, and her writing has been featured in the Huffington Post, the Boston Globe Magazine, the Tampa Tribune, and several other media outlets. She recently wrote a piece for the Atlantic Magazine titled The Crisis Facing America's Working Daughters. Liz O'Donnell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. In your piece for The Atlantic, you make the point that while working moms have, quote, an endless stream of resources to guide and comfort them, uh, a working mother who's also caring for an aging parent is, quote, unseen and widely ignored. Can you uh, expand on that, if you would, for our listeners? Sure. I came to this topic, actually, right after my book, Mogul Mom and Maid, came out. And I was out on the road doing all kinds of book promotions and speaking engagements. And all of a sudden, my parents, who were in their 80s at the time, started to need more and more. And I guess you'd call it irony that here I was going out talking about the challenges that working mothers face. And all of a sudden, I was, you know, majorly impacted as a working daughter. And I thought, wow, guys, it's 
booked one night to keynote a mommy's night out event for young women who had just recently given birth. You know, so they were parents of babies and toddlers. Mm-hmm. And I started the day an hour and 15 minutes from home, taking my mother to the doctor. She was late when I got there, so we had to move the appointment back. The doctor lit into me that I wasn't doing enough for my mother. I felt so devastated mm-hmm. sitting in his office. I got a flat tire on the way home. (laughs) Before I left, you know, my dad needed help. He couldn't figure out how to log onto his computer, which now I know was an early sign of dementia. At the time, I didn't know what was up. And, you know, I get home. I'm thinking, you know, you originally think a speaking engagement. I'm going to do my hair and you know, put on a pretty dress. I got home. I brushed my teeth. I went out. (laughs) And I'm standing up in front of all these women talking about, you know, the challenges of early motherhood. And and in my mind, I'm like, ladies, you don't even know what I've been through. And I didn't even know that I would go through this. That was what started it for me. Well, let's back up a minute then and, and tell us about how you grew up and where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up outside of Boston in a town called Dedham. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of um, three daughters. Mm-hmm. My parents moved to Cape Cod and I actually bought their house. So they were living an hour and 15 minutes away from me uh, up until recently. Mm-hmm. And you wrote in your book that when you were growing up in the 70s, your parents in- indulged your dreams and, and back life, you didn't give a whole lot of thought to work-life balance. But eventually, uh, when you did get married, you became the sole breadwinner, which was something that you actually talked about with your husband before you even had children. So that's unusual. Right, boy, was that a mistake, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Um, you just don't know what you don't know. And that's why I think the conversations that we're having today about working motherhood and working daughterhood are so important. Mm-hmm. You know, one of three daughters, my father, you know, raised us all to be whatever we wanted to be. And even, you know, in some households where there are sisters and brothers, you see sort of a sexism around who does what chores. Mm-hmm. You know, I made the beds and cut the lawn. Mm-hmm. I went to Emerson College in Boston mm-hmm. where um, I did not notice or experience any kind of sexism. Mm-hmm. And then I started working. And all of a sudden you get into the work world and you're like, whoa, why didn't anyone tell me I need to be a feminist? Like there's some challenges <laughs> that we face. And, you know, fall in love with a good guy. I'm like, I love working. I'm never going to stop working. And, and actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the choice that I made not to um, be the primary caregiver. But you just don't know what you don't know. And then caregiving, elder care is the same thing. You have no idea. Uh-huh. Are your parents still living? My father is alive. He's 89, and he now lives in assisted living uh, about two miles away from me. Okay. And my mom passed away about 15 months ago, and that was part of the story, too, mm-hmm. which is I got a call from my sister. I had been traveling for work. It was a weekend. I was at my son's soccer game. We had all kinds of family activities loaded up for the weekend because I had been away, and I was just really looking forward to relaxing this one weekend, and my sister called. She was out of state. And she said, Dad's acting really weird. Mom's really worried about him. I need you to go down there. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I ran out of the house on a Sunday to see what was up with my parents. And um, I didn't come home for a week. I didn't come home. I didn't show up to work for a week. And ultimately, about two weeks later, they were both diagnosed on the same day. He was diagnosed with early-stage dementia, and she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh, my gosh. So, And oh. I think that's a, a wow. typical... Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty intense summer and fall. This was about, it wasn't last year, but the year before. Oh, my gosh. But I think that's that's what we see happen. Either yeah. as a caregiver, there's this creep that we talk about, right? Yeah. The caregiver creep where mm-hmm. you don't, you know, starts with some groceries and some doctor's appointments <laughs> and you don't realize how much you're taking on. Or it hits with a crisis and mm-hmm. then like, bam, you're mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So how did your siblings react and did they help? Tell me about how your family moved through those major changes. Well, I'll start by saying this. I'm glad that I'm the one who's doing the writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, get to, I get to tell the story. Um, both of my sisters are gifted writers and if uh, I'd be worried if they put their fingers to the keyboard because I'm sure they have a very different take on uh, you know, mm. how the three of us work together. Mm. But um, ultimately... You know, we all work differently, and that's one of the big learnings that I had. You know, there were moments, I am very good at logistics. Mm -hmm. I can manage a crisis from, you know, I had a spreadsheet. At one point, my spreadsheet had 125 things that needed to get done because I was moving my parents, you know, into two different facilities and managing two different diagnoses and sets of doctors and, you know, setting up the phone and unhooking the phone at home and meeting with elder care, you know, all that stuff that all of a sudden you just have to do. And I'm really good at that. Uh, what I'm not so good at is the feeling part. <laughs> so I would get really, really frustrated because my sisters don't work at the same pace that I work at when uh-huh. it comes to the logistics and the stuff. But ultimately, the learning was they get to approach this however they want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually I realized they're not going to work at the same pace as you. They're not going to manage tasks the same way you are. Now is not the time to be frustrated by that. Now is not the time to try to change who they are. Now is the time to say, you know what, I'm going to go run these 17 errands. Can you go sit by mom's side and keep her company? Mm-hmm. And so you divide and conquer based <laughs> on your skills. And that's why I laugh. If they wrote the book, they'd say she was bossy, she was impatient, and that's all true. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the youngest, so I'm not supposed to be the bossy one. Wow, really? But I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I used to say that to, to my poor mother as she's lying in hospice. I'm like, I'm the youngest. This isn't fair. So tell us how your work life was affected by this. Well, and that's the other thing that was so eye-opening for me, you know, choosing years ago to be the breadwinner and actually always really enjoying my career and work. Mm-hmm. In a million years, if you ever told me I would step out of the workplace, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have believed you. And that day that I referenced when the doctor lit into me was the first time in my career that I ever thought, I need to quit because I can't manage my work-life balance. And I think if you're a mother, a woman, you know, middle-class means and privilege, you're going to read some article at some point in the New York Times that tells you the statistics are very, you know, in favor that you will want to quit your job when you become a mother. Uh-huh. I never had that feeling. But I remember that was the first of many times sitting in that doctor's office when he was saying, you don't call her enough. You should move her in with you. You need to better manage her diet. I just thought this is too much. If I could quit, but I couldn't because I was the breadwinner. If I could quit, I would. So what happened when they were both diagnosed that summer I ended up working part-time, and Mm -hmm. I'm one of the lucky ones. I work for a company that's very Mm family-friendly, and um, actually the founder had gone through a similar situation where her mother was diagnosed, and she wanted that flexibility. Mm -hmm. So I was able to say, you know, next week I'm going to work all mornings, and the week after that I think I'm going to work all evening. So I was really lucky, but I did, you know, I used up all of my vacation and all of my sick time because I couldn't afford not to work, but I couldn't get the work done. Mm-hmm. Wow. You were really juggling a lot. And so was your husband taking care of your kids mostly? And thank God for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I abandoned my family for you know weeks at a time because there was so much to manage. Of course, as a mother, you know, there's all kinds of guilt that goes with that. You want to be home, but you, you're managing a crisis. But I don't know how someone else would have done that. Um, and that's the scary thing. And that's why we have to have this conversation. Right? Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, the, the growing numbers. 
um, of how many people are aging so rapidly in our society. Like, what is the plan? We need to figure out how to make these workers uh, be able to manage both. Mm-hmm. So when you wrote the book, you weren't really thinking about the issue of elder care, it sounds like. You were thinking, no. You're right. You were focused more on the balancing act of being a spouse, a mom, and a working mother. And yet, in the course of writing your book, I'm sure that you that caregiving came up. So between the book and the article, do, do you have examples of other working daughters who are going through stresses and what sort of issues have come up for them that maybe didn't come up for you? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I certainly referenced elder care once or twice in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was actually Working Mother Institute that had done a study that I referenced in the book that oftentimes women who are taking care of their elderly parents feel even more, I don't know if discriminated against is the right word, but more marginalized at work than even working parents do. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we don't have language about it. We don't talk about it typically. You don't know that other people are going through it. And it's so unpredictable. When you're a mother, you know, if you get pregnant, there comes a time you know when you're going to roughly give birth and take maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And you can set a plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, most women I know don't stick to the plan, right? Mm-hmm. You, think, you know, they might say, I'm coming back full time, I'm not coming back. Or, and then there's, a, there's often a shift. Mm-hmm. But there's some plan and most women follow the plan at least closely. Mm-hmm. But with caregiving, you don't know when you're going to get that phone call. So mm-hmm. I can see how a younger workforce isn't thinking about this. You know, as, as millennials were coming into the workforce and Xers and boomers were starting to deal with this, these millennials hadn't even thought about elder care. And so why all of a sudden is Liz not here again? Or why is Liz in the closet taking another personal call? Or why is Liz <laughs> on hold? Because I've been trying to get them to insurance. And, you know, and the movement now is to these open workspaces. And I always say, whoever invented these open workspaces, <laughs> was never a caregiver, because sometimes you have to talk about gross things, right? Right. No privacy. Right, <laughs> right, right. And now I forget what your question was. I apologize. No, I was just wondering if you had any uh, recollections of specific examples with people that you spoke with, any, anyone that sticks out in your mind that you remembered. Yeah, so there's, uh, this is, I think this is interesting. I'm friendly with a woman who I met through blogging, and I don't know if you're familiar with the show Listen to Your Mother. But mm-hmm. Listen to Your Mother mm-hmm. is a show that's produced in, I don't know, 25 to 30 cities around the country, and basically it gives voice to motherhood. So there are local producers in each city, and they put on shows around Mother's Day, and they invite women to come and audition to read something they've written about motherhood. It could be about having a mother, being a mother, anything around motherhood. So Are I, these television um, shows or radio? No, no, no. They're live. Um, oh, live events. Oh, live performances. Okay. Yeah, live events. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I auditioned a few years ago and was in the first Boston Listen to Your Mother show and became friendly with this producer who's a blogger who blogs about motherhood. And it wasn't until I started to do research around working daughters, and I'm actually working on a book on that topic, and interviewed her for the book because someone said, you should talk to this woman. She's going through something, too. And we got on the phone together. So here's a woman I became friends with via our connection as mothers. It never heard to me that we had a connection as daughters mm-hmm. and her father has Alzheimer's and we, you know, experienced some of the same things and I'm interviewing her and we're crying and, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so moving and what she's going through. And it was so nice to make a connection with someone else who understood, mm-hmm. but it never occurred to me to connect with someone as a daughter versus a mother. Yeah. So you're a sandwich generation mom, but you're also mm-hmm. the main breadwinner. Does your husband help out with your Caring responsibilities for your dad. Um, he's in assisted living, but does he help out? He does. He does. And, you know, we uh, there were times 
you know, my mother was in hospice. She'd only been given three months to live. Oh. It was towards the end, but she was hanging on. And I, this might sound cold, but caregivers understand. Um, I was on the phone with a friend one day and I said, I don't know what's going to last longer, my mother or my marriage. Because I was out the door, I was doing everything possible to manage the situation around both of my parents and moving them and end of life and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't very communicative again, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm glad I'm the writer and not him. Um, <laughs> you know, and I was frustrated. I felt like he wasn't being sensitive. He was frustrated because, you know, ultimately when we got through that crisis phase and talked, he said, you didn't include me. You know, you weren't. And I was just on, I was moving so fast. Yeah. Um, and, and so now, you know, it's hard because parents are so personal. That sounds like such an obvious statement, right? Mm-hmm. But, and they want their own children. I mean, my, my mother loves my husband, but they want, you know, the comfort of their own children, oh, I think, sure. when, they're in, when they're facing end of life. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, I don't call on my husband to help with my father. He supports me by taking care of everything else in our life. Mm-hmm. But if I'm traveling and there's a doctor's appointment that I don't want my dad to miss or it took me a long time, you know, he absolutely does that. And, you know, one of the biggest frustrations I have as a caregiver is, if my father hits the wrong button on the remote control, he can be without the TV for a month. I don't <laughs> understand why someone hasn't made senior-friendly remote controls. And it's not intuitive to me. And I'll say, please just drive over to my dad's tomorrow afternoon and fix the damn TV. Oh, I, I did that so many times for my mother, too, at the Georgetown. She lived at a retirement oh. home in Georgetown. <laughs> can can you come over? Making. I know. Totally crazy making. Um, but yeah. so how hard was it to get your dad to move into an assisted living facility? Well, I mean, there's always a silver lining to any crisis. I, if you had told me my father would live in assisted living, I, you know, again, I sort of like me ever going part time or taking time off of work, I would have said never in mm-hmm, a million years. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that's going to go down with the ship. But it was originally he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. And what happened was he had a urinary tract infection, so he was mm-hmm. showing up really off. Mm-hmm. And I admitted mm-hmm. him to an ER to have him transferred to get an evaluation. And in the ER, he tried to leave, so they gave him an anti-psych drug, which oh. rendered him just completely incoherent. And, you know, I thought it killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, when that, when both the infection and the effects of that drug cleared, he sort of returned to his old self. I mean, I, he definitely has early-stage dementia, but I don't believe the Alzheimer diagnosis anymore. So, but at the time, they told me he's never going to live on his own again. He needs to be in a memory care unit. So I moved him into a locked memory care unit. And then as the infection and the drug wore off, he said to me, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Oh, my gosh. And I think the doctors and the other people who were involved in his care team, when I said I don't think he has Alzheimer's, I think they just saw a daughter in denial. Mm-hmm. They probably hear this all the time. Mm-hmm. But I stayed with it, and that's a lesson, right? that we know our families better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I stayed with and I advocated. And so he was one of the first residents of this memory care unit who was transferred from the memory care unit to the assisted living apartments, where normally it goes the other way around. Uh-huh. But luckily the staff, you know, the staff worked with me on a transition and we moved him. But I guess long answer is if my mom hadn't been two miles down the road in a hospice and if he hadn't got to that facility in such an icky way, mm-hmm. He never would have. He probably never would have got him there. So there's a silver lining in everything. How did he get the urinary tract infection? Here's the thing. So my mother was always more open to asking for our help, my sisters and I, mm-hmm. and I managed my mother's meds, and I hired a nurse to help her sort her pills. She had mm-hmm. had brain cancer oh. 20 years prior to when she passed. She had had 
heart surgery. So she was on quite a few medications, mm-hmm. and that, oh, it gets overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I had hired a nurse who came in every two weeks just to sort her meds, and I had hired her home health aide because at one point she had a bad fall, and she was on a walker and stopped driving. So I had a home health aide come in and do chores around the house, take her shopping, that sort of thing. My dad never wanted any help, and he seemed so confident and capable that we never got involved, really, in his health care. Mm-hmm. And so as my mom started to get sicker, she stopped being able to handle all of that stuff for him. Mm-hmm. So it turns out, you know, my father was getting sicker and sicker, and some of his prescription meds had run out, and nobody knew because we were so focused on my mother. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he was off his medication, and I assume that's probably what led to it. I don't know exactly, but. Wow. That is just a path <laughs> I never would have predicted from a urinary tract infection to antipsychotics. I mean, that's just that's oh, crazy. That's crazy. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a woman here in Boston, her name's Jan Benvenuti, and she runs an organization called Circle of Life. I actually hired her to help me sort through my crisis when um, I was in the middle of it. And she wrote a book called Please Don't Give Up On Me. And it was about her experience with taking care of both of her parents. And she had a similar experience in the book. So, you know, having read the book now, I I understand what we went through and how it worked. But Mm -hmm. again, you know, podcasts like this one and the conversation we're having so helpful because who talks about her this stuff until, you know, people like you came onto the scene. So are your sisters, remind me, are they nearby? Uh, One is local and one's out of state. One is out of state. Okay. And during the time that you had this family crisis, it sounds like you were doing most of the heavy lifting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in what ways did they participate? Well, I, was, I think my sister who's local would say she was doing just as much heavy lifting. Oh, okay. Um, because, ev- because everybody does things to their ability, right? Right. She was missing a lot of work. She was at the hospice home, you know, all the time. I just mm-hmm. think I was doing more of the task-related stuff, mm-hmm. and she was doing more of the sitting by your The side. emotional stuff. Okay, stuff. I yeah. got it. You know, there were moments where, you know, I wanted to <laughs> wring both of their necks. And certainly, you know, my sister, who was long distance, and believe me, I know they feel the same way. So I'm not speaking too out of turn. But my sister, who was long distance, would sometimes say, you don't know how hard this is for me. I'm long distance. And I just want to come through the phone. Like, how hard it is for you? Yeah. You get to go to sleep at night in your own bed. I'm sleeping in a chair at hospice. You know, you need, you get to show up at work. I don't yeah. get to do any of those things. Yeah. But re- I, it's, again, when I started interviewing other caregivers for this book that I'm working on and meeting long distance caregivers, I think that it's hard to see it when you're in the moment. But I think we really do need to be sensitive to the fact that long-distance caregivers have very real challenges and local caregivers have very different real challenges and we need to find a way to show some compassion and understanding for those two. Mm-hmm. A lot of long-distance caregivers feel intense guilt and yeah. uh, missing out. It's tough. No matter how you slice it, there's really no easy answer. You, and that's you, the thing. I mean, we all need to, we need to feed ourselves and work and there's only so much time off. It's hard. Yeah. So what role do you see the media as playing in this conversation? I think the media can play a very important role, and not just mainstream media, but even bloggers. You know, when you look at in between maybe uh, roughly 2004 and now, how many women started blogging about motherhood and how much they exposed the challenges created community for mothers, gave mothers a safe place to say, you know, I'm going crazy, whatever it might be. I'm starting to see more of that crop up in the blogosphere around caregiving, certainly podcasts are the new blogs, lots of it popping up in the podcast world. So I think non-traditional media is going to play a big role in giving voice to this. 
traditionally, I don't think the mainstream media has done enough. And my frustration always was when I would either go searching, and it was usually 3 a.m., right, when you can't sleep and you're mm-hmm. so stressed out and guilt-ridden, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i go looking for resources online. Um, and even in conversations I would have with people, I felt like people would always say, Oh, how wonderful. What a gift that you're able to do this to your parents. And inside, I'm thinking, that's not a gift. It's a nightmare. Yeah, right. And and ultimately, there is a gift. There's there's a lot of studies on this idea of the caregiver's gain. Mm -hmm. Well documented, but not well promoted. That, you know, there's incredible benefits, both physical, mental, and emotional well-being to have cared for someone in such an important, vulnerable time in their life. But the reality of it, day to day, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, And so when you meet people or every story you went to that said, you know, oh, isn't that wonderful? What a gift. You just felt so unvalidated or unheard and Mm -hmm. unsupported. Well, it's also a really convenient way to avoid the larger issues and the practical complications around that and to sort of, you know, I sort of compare it to saying, uh, thank you for your service to to war veterans, you know, I mean, you know, it's it's a way of getting out of um, a very difficult discussion and it's well-meaning, but it's, it's not helpful. It's not an easy topic to think about. We don't want to think about, again, I keep going back to motherhood versus daughterhood. Motherhood, you're bringing a new life into the world. And, you know, babies, what surrounds babies are hope for the future. Mm-hmm. In daughterhood, you're helping someone exit the world. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about that. And so, so you know, the typical caregiver, as you know, is 48-year-old woman. And I know I felt this way sometimes, but I kept thinking, once I'm through this phase in my life, I'm going to need a caregiver. Mm-hmm. So you're not only looking at losing a parent, which is you know, kind of an earth-shattering experience, right. you're also facing your own mortality, mm-hmm. and you're getting an up-close look. I, you know, wish I hadn't seen some of the things I've seen. It's <laughs> yeah. a little scary. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah. it's not like it's a conversation people want to have at a cocktail party. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> Maybe at a conference. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but not at a cocktail party. Yeah, but a lot of people who work in the field of aging who are sort of at the forefront of real change are trying to reframe this conversation in terms of an opportunity. So it's an opportunity yeah. for us to really reexamine what it means to age in this country. I mean, we're on this mm-hmm. long journey and it can be great at every stage, but mm-hmm. not if we shrink away from the challenges. We're going to age no matter what. So Hopefully, right? Hopefully. Hopefully, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Talk about the political, uh, what you'd like to see more of in the political sphere um, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. To me, um, the most important legislation that I'm aware of right now is the you know, the paid leave legislation that's happening state by state mm-hmm. and making sure that paid leave is viewed not just as a parental issue, first of all, not just as a mother issue, but a mother and a father, and then not just as a parental issue, but as a family issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned this in the Atlantic article that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, just signed something, I think, at the end of 2015, right. a, a parental leave, and that's a paid leave, and that's fantastic, but it's only for workers who are parents, not for workers who have parents. And so we need to make sure that elder care is a part of all of those conversations around work-life flex, around re-entering the workforce. When you come back from burying a parent and maybe having been bedside during a death, 
and you're grieving and you need to reenter the workforce and it's brutal. So how, you know, not only how are we helping women ramp back on after taking time off with a baby, how are we helping people ramp back on after being through this sort of, you know, life shaking moment? And the other thing I'd say around politics is I'm really disappointed that there hasn't been more discussion in this election cycle. I know Hillary Clinton has proposed a credit for mm-hmm. family caregivers, and I think that's fantastic. But other, unless I'm missing something, I, you know, I try to watch as many debates as I can. It's not a conversation that's coming up right now, and that's too bad. Mm-hmm. We should say for our listeners that the current Federal Family and Medical Leave Act gives workers 12 weeks of job-protected but unpaid leave for a serious health condition or birth or caring for a family member with a, a serious health condition. But it doesn't cover businesses with fewer than 50 employees, and it protects your job, but the pay is uh, voluntary. So it's good in some ways, but it falls far short of what we need. I do know that there are three states that have paid family leave laws, California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, and they fund it with right. um, mandatory payroll contributions from the workers. So, you know, it's, it's going to go, it's going to be state by state thing, but you're right. I completely agree with you. The, the candidates aren't talking about it enough. And I say this over and over again, but they're all way past retirement age. Well, not way past, but they're all, <laughs> when one of them gets <laughs> right. sworn in, they're going to be well past retirement mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. And it's a, an, an issue that affects them. And I'm not quite sure, given that fact, that they aren't discussing it, discussing it given, given that it does affect them. Perhaps it's because they're speaking from, from such privileged positions. Uh, I just don't know. I think, you know, we have a pathological fear of aging in this country, and um, it prevents us from, from addressing these issues in a really healthy way. Um, I believe there's a movement to revamp FMLA, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. I haven't dug that much into it, but you're right. I mean, Family Medical Leave Act is helpful, and it's there, but I would suspect the majority of Americans aren't working at Fortune, you know, whatever hundred companies. Right. Most of us, you'll find, in small businesses. And so there are real challenges to the FMLA to be able to uh, take advantage of it. The number of employees, like you said, I believe employees um, so many miles away from a, you know, from a headquarter office and also your length of time. So it's, it's good that we have it, but there's much more that we could do. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, did you discover in the course of your research about how women leaving the workforce affects em- employers? Well, I think the statistic that I quote in the Atlantic article comes from MetLife, if I remember correctly, and it, uh, they calculate that women lose, on average, about $344,000 in compensation mm-hmm. as a result of the time they take off to deal with caregiving issues. And that number was very similar to the cost to employees because of attrition and absenteeism. And I think another very real danger for employees is presenteeism. So I'm showing up for work, Mm -hmm. but my head is not in the game. And so um, I understand that small businesses, healthcare costs are outrageous and flexibility can be difficult to implement, but I just can't see this as anything but good business because 10,000 people turning 65 every day. Most of your workers are going to be impacted by caregiving at some point. So isn't it just smart business to guide these employees through this and maintain them, have them in a situation to come back or give them some space? And this goes for, and I talk a lot about this in Mogul Mom and Maid for working parents, that 
mothers, I say, and I, this goes, this is true for daughters and sons too, but we walk around with this invisible task list, this list of stuff. Like I mentioned, my invisible that I what? Invisible tasks. Oh, so for a mother, that might be like, you know, make sure I register them for soccer and mm-hmm. do they have, you know, mm-hmm. cleats that fit and mm-hmm. just the stuff that you don't get a lot of credit for doing, but it's playing in your head all the time. And mm-hmm. I say the same goes for sons and daughters, right? It's mm-hmm. call the VA and find out how that mm-hmm. claim is pending and find out why the blood lab keeps billing me when my father has three insurances, you know, for mm-hmm. example. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we need to give employees the space at uh-huh. work to uh-huh. do some of this because life creeps into work and vice versa. There's no on and off switch, you know, that starts at nine and ends at five. And I think businesses that give employees space to get personal stuff done during the day are more likely not to have suffer from this presenteeism and these hidden costs. Well, let me ask you about your husband's parents. Are they still living? Yes. In fact, right after I sort of got through the crisis phase, after my mom passed away and my dad was doing well and settled, my mother-in-law had a stroke. Mm. Um, She's doing really well, but all of a sudden, you know, my husband and his sisters were running out of the house into the hospital and trying to figure out a plan, and they're starting to have the conversation, can we get her to leave the house? We think she'd do better in a community. So I think it's just... It's dominoes. Mm-hmm. Is she a widow? Uh, no, but uh, my father-in-law lives in another state. And okay. We don't hear from him as much, yeah. Okay, okay. So he may have learned a few things from you, though, and your husband in the course of caring <laughs> for your phone. I, mean, I hope so, it, right? <laughs> it's, it's like it's how we learn. We learn from each other. We're not getting any guidance from the government, and I'm not one of these people who says the government has to do everything, but we're, right. we're really not getting much in the way of guidance from our political leaders, um, our, our politicians. I'm not even going to say political leaders. Because, you know, because <laughs> they're not leading, they're fundraising, right. basically. Um, so, job, so, yeah, right, exactly. So they're so we're really learning a lot of things from each other. Did you have financial challenges as well going through this time with your parents? You know, I didn't. But in the beginning, I didn't know if I did or not. So mm-hmm. in the beginning, I was so terrified to spend money because I didn't have my husband has been paying my parents bills you know, managing all of their bills for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. So he had some visibility, but there's some digging required to find out just exactly how much they have and what the run rate is going to be. And I was spending a lot of money at first and that had me very stressed out. So for example, so we, you know, we sent my dad to the ER, he was transferred to the hospital. My mom's on a walker. We don't want her to be alone. So we put her in a 30 day respite care mm-hmm. at an assisted living mm-hmm. on Cape Cod where she was living. A few days later, she was transferred to the emergency room and then up to Boston where they diagnosed ovarian cancer. A few days later, they discharged her. And they're like, you can take her home. I'm like, where? You know, I, I popped by on my lunch hour and they're like, oh, take your mom home. Where? You know, my house isn't set up for this. I haven't had this conversation with my husband. She lives an hour and a half away. Like, where am I supposed to put her? So uh-huh. put her back in the respite care for a bit. And then I was moving them both into, you know, separate apartments because she was going into assisted living and then eventually hospice he was going into memory care so i left a lot of money on the table if you will you know uh-huh. breaking leases and moving them and my mom only made it in assisted living a few weeks when we moved her to hospice and that was really stress inducing because oh, i just sure. didn't know how much you know i was lucky my mother did such an amazing job managing her money and she once i found all the folders and the paperwork she had everything ready for me which i think is the greatest gift 
that parents can give us and we can give younger generations is to have it all organized. But, it was, you know, I went to an elder care attorney and I paid a big fee, but I think every penny was worth it. I hired that woman, Jan Benvenuti, at Circle of Life, and that was probably, I always say to Jan, you are the best money I have ever spent. <laughs> this is the best value. And I once found a brand new pair of Prada designer boots <laughs> in a thrift shop for $40, and I'm comparing her to that. It was a better value than that. <laughs> wow, so, that's but, saying but, a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a big compliment. So I had stress, but it turns out, you know, it wasn't warranted, which is a great thing. But that's very real to people. Um, people are shelling out money. Yeah. Uh, it's costing people to be caregivers. And it's so dependent on what your resources are. Do your parents, right. whether your parents have resources, whether you have resources, whether you qualify for Medicare or, or Medicaid, whether you can even get into Medicaid, whether you spend down. I mean, there's just so much to consider in the midst of going through a very emotional experience where money is the last thing you really want to think about. But of course, you have to think about it. And I think you nailed it. It's that figuring all of this out is difficult. I mean, some of these websites, especially the government websites, are circular. You know, mm. click here to learn about Medicare, and then you click there, and then it clicks you back. And, and usually we're accessing these websites and these resources in a time of crisis when we're tired and we're stressed out. So that would, I think that would be some learning, too, is if you have parents, you can pretty much predict that at some point you'll be a caregiver. Nobody likes to plan for crisis and nobody likes to think about end of life, but those who do are going to be so ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about how you would like to spend your later years after this experience with your parents? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to. I, I said to my high school girlfriends, because one of them has, her mother is in the same assisted living. So I live in the town I grew up in. And mm -hmm. in fact, I run into high school people all the time visiting mm -hmm. their parents at um, at the assisted living. And so I said to them, you know, the five girls I was closest with in high school, I said, let's make a pact. Let's move in. Let's dump the guys. <laughs> we'll, all be, we'll all have apartments. We'll eat dinner together. We'll drink wine at night together. I, here's what I think. I think that our parents came from a different generation and, you know, assisted living wasn't as readily available. And, you know, there was real pressure to bring your parents into your home. But the other thing is our parents' parents probably weren't sick as long, right? Mm -hmm. There's way more medicine and, and drugs and advancements. They're keeping people alive a lot longer. Now, we, a lot of uh, my generation, I find, are racked with guilt dealing with moving their parents out of home. You know, do I let them age in home? Do I move them into my home? Do I move them into a facility? So I think this is, you know, we're sort of first generation seeing that, assisted living in some of these facilities can be a wonderful way of life. Yeah. And I think that's going to make an impact. If you can afford it and you can find if one you can afford that, it. that is reputable. Right. You know what's hard is mm. sometimes I feel like I'm violating my father's privacy by sharing all of his mm -hmm. challenges and medical issues. But I don't know how you paint the truth, right, without sharing that. I don't know if that ever comes up for you. Absolutely. Well, I think that's one of the main reasons that also caregivers are reluctant to get help. We might feel like we're betraying a trust by talking about yeah. these things, or we might think yeah. we can do it all on our own and that we don't need help. But how's your dad doing now? How's he's he doing? He's doing really well. It's so funny. I was just out at lunch, a work lunch, and I always kind of judged people who kept their cell phones on the table. Like, put your phone away, you know. And I also, as a, as a mother, I have that luxury because I know the school will call my husband. But um, since becoming a caregiver, my phone is out all the time. And yeah. sure enough, I woke up and went to ladies and I came back and I saw, you know, a call from dad. I'm like, oh my God, excuse me. And the heart stops for a second. Yeah. And he was calling to tell me that 
he had given me his electric razor the other day when I was there. He said it wasn't working and could I look at it. And he was calling to tell me it wasn't the razor. It's the outlet in his room. And my father's a former electrician. Oh. And so he was going to figure out how to... Um, break into the electrical circuit board of the <laughs> no. place. And I'm, and, and I'm not kidding. He will. I mean, he's been caught trying to hack the HVAC system and break into the maintenance closet and got in trouble oh during that historic snowfall we had last winter because he was going out and shoveling. He didn't think they did enough, a good enough job. So oh, no. he's doing really well. I'm just <laughs> he's kicked out. I'm not taking him in. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. How old are your kids? Uh, my kids are 11 and 13. 11 and 13? 13-year-old boy and 11-year-old girl. Oh, okay. And they have to do, uh, they have a volunteer, well, my son has a volunteer requirement because he's in the National Junior Honor Society. Uh-huh. And so he volunteers up at the assisted living. He helps oh, call the bingo that's numbers. Great. So that's been really nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and my daughter once, after my mom had a fall, her bad fall, and um, you know, she broke her nose and it was just horrible. And it was summer, so we brought the kids down and stayed at my mom's for a while. And my daughter said to me, she was probably about seven or nine at the time, and she said, Mom, how can you go in the bathroom every time Nana goes in the bathroom? And she went, oh, you have to help her? And I said, yeah, you know, she's really hurt after this fall and mm. can't risk her falling in the bathroom, and, you know, you do what you got to do. And she goes, not me, thanks. <laughs> oh. Oh. So she pretty much told me she won't be helping me. I'm going to be relying on myself. She told you that she wasn't going to do that for you? <laughs> no, but that I could call on her brother to do it. so how do you feel about getting older it's a little scary having seen it up close i won't lie at the same time i think there's incredible freedom you know that comes with you know not caring about certain things anymore and i think when you are a caregiver and you are with someone as you know they move towards the end of their life you get really crystal clear about what matters and what doesn't and so that's a gift my motto through all of this became well it I took it from a Robert Frost quote. He used a lot more words and was a lot more eloquent. I don't remember the exact quote, but I've distilled it down to the only way through is through. Mm -hmm. There's no going around this issue. It probably will happen to you, and as hard as it is, you just need to go through the center, and you will come out the other side. All right. Well, Liz O'Donnell, thanks so much for being on the show. She's the author of Mogul, Mom, and Maid, The Balancing Act of the Modern Woman, and recently of an article in the February issue of The Atlantic Magazine, and you can visit her blog at workingdaughter.com. Liz, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode. You can email me at Jenna at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.